We are live, feeling good, feeling great, actually, as a matter of fact. And welcome to Capital Spotlight, episode 21, with a very special announcement and also a little story time from you. Coming a day after, you're watching this later, a day after uh, the one of the most important holidays of the year, that is 1031 Exchange Day. Some people call it Halloween. In our world, it's uh, 1031 Exchange Day. But we have, as I said, a very packed show. As always, your host, Craig McGrother, the Director of Business Development here at Lone Star Capital, seeking all fund managers to bring equity to our deals. And then one, the only, the principal, author, co-founder of Lone Star Capital, the distinguished Rob Beardsley. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here and to talk about this amazing subject. Right. Well, with that said, we are not in person today anymore. After the month-long road stint, I am back in my half-life residence, as I'm in New York and Phoenix a lot. The weather turned to New York. The weather's turning in Arizona for the better. So we chase good weather, good deals, good people, and good clients, and great equity, of course. But today, we have a very special show, but I want to make a quick plug to us prior to getting into the show. If you are a fund manager looking to bring equity into any deals, looking for more relationships for new sponsors... If you're an LP investor looking to buy when the real estate market is going to be depressed in the next 24 months, let us know. Uh, you know we're already in the process as we just closed a big deal uh, at a great rate that we wouldn't have seen uh, prior. Uh, so it's very excited. But if you're looking to bring funds, uh, you know JV in any deal, or look to learn more about Lone Star Capital, please reach out to me. I'd be happy to give you the whole kit and caboodle give you the whole breakdown of who we are, what we do, and why you should work with us as opposed to our competitors. My email is craig at lscre.com. Once again, craig at lscre.com. I'm also going to be launching a another podcast underneath this umbrella, which is going to be called Fund Friday or Fund Fridays. Yeah, Below- let us know what you prefer, Fund Friday or Fund Fridays. I I was asking my dad this morning, and he kind of felt Fund Friday was good. I initially was pushing for Fund Fridays. And I'm now kind of thinking maybe Fun Friday is better. Fun, fun Friday was what I like more, but we'll let the people give us a little guidance. So let us know. And then also, if you are a fund manager uh, looking to you know talk on the podcast and be under our umbrella, reach out to me. Once again, my email is craig at lscre.com. But that's not the bulk of the show. What is the bulk of the show is two things we want to go through. Actually, three things if we have time. Number one, Lone Star Capital just closed on a $105 million portfolio deal in Houston during the most challenging time to close a transaction. Secondly, what also happened is we're going to do a little story time on a deal that we walked away from in August, I want to say, where we walked away from, can I say the number? Yes. We walked away from $750,000 because we could not put the full loan star stamp of approval on the deal. As If we go to live with you for any deal... If we were going to close any deal with you, it's got to be the best deal. So we're going to prove that to you and where we put our money where our mouth is with that story there. We're also going to walk through how much we love the Houston 3 property portfolio, utilizing a very unique program. And then finally, if we're lucky, if you're lucky, Rob Beardsley and I will walk you through the Suits Supply website and show you exactly what we recommend you to build out. If one, if you are looking to uh, perhaps get your suits upgraded, whatever it may be. You don't need to go to some fancy, fancy tailor. Go to Suit Supply. They will sort you out. They'll get you tailored and we'll give you the essentials there. With that said, let's talk about the Houston 3 property portfolio, the three deals, how it's in our favorite market to be in, arguably Houston. Uh, so why don't you lead it off and, and lead the way? Yeah. Are you feeling relieved, by the way? Because this has been a journey and I'm so excited to not be talking about this deal anymore. <laughs> right. So we're not, we're excited to be done talking about it, but let's talk about it on the show. So naturally, it's crazy. We originally were talking about these deals in December of 2022. And we are only now talking about closing these deals in October 2023. So that is an extremely long period. And as we all know, time kills all deals. So it's been a changing market over the last year. It's been a difficult situation. This portfolio acquisition has had idiosyncratic challenges associated with the strategy. We can't talk too specifically about the affordable housing strategy and uh, the property tax exemptions that we placed on these properties. But uh, However, that... 
Yeah. If you're looking yep. to learn more about those, reach out to me and I can walk you through if you're looking to raise capital for our deals. Sorry for the introduction. Yep. Nope. Yep. Yep. Craig can talk to you about that privately, of course, uh, if you'd like to partner with us on future opportunities where we create unique value through property tax exemptions and things like that. So yeah, so these these uh, three properties in Houston are extremely attractive. Two of them are next door to each other. They're two, the two next door are late 90s vintage properties with no deferred maintenance, good school districts, very nice, quiet communities. And then the third deal is actually inside the inner loop of Houston. So really well located just southwest of the Texas Medical Center, tons of jobs near the Galleria. So they're shopping and dining nearby. So a lot to like about the real estate and the locations. Uh, but as I mentioned, what really made these deals unique and extremely attractive was the fact that we were placing 100% property tax exemptions on these properties. So that's what allowed us to create the opportunity. However, it did not come without challenges. And so, as I mentioned, we've been chasing and working on these deals for almost a year. And the reason for that long delay was because of getting those approvals. And uh, while it's always difficult, it was even more difficult because we battled uh, Texas state law changes in regards to these programs. We also battled uh, just political opposition to these deals in particular and, and to this program. So working through all those issues, we had to put the deal on pause essentially, and we didn't know if we were actually going to end up being able to close and move forward. And that's a very scary thing because we have a lot of personal money at risk. And also more than that, we have our reputation online. If we're going to bring investors in, that is you want to close with your investors. So one thing I think we should highlight is the struggle every day that we took on of investor relations as it relates to this project, because I think things can fall apart quickly with time killing deals and investors getting antsy. So I think one of the most proud things, what we should be most proud of is the fact that we had such high investor retention. Investors could have said, hey, I'm tired of waiting. I'm pulling my money out. And we had very, very few instances of that. So can you speak on investor relations during this process? Yeah. So it was a very, uh, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm never complaining. I love to work, but it was getting to the point where it was very taxing because we had several partners on this deal and we had several, as you mentioned, friends and family and people in our private network, as we call it, retail investors in our tranche for the deal. We actually raised the largest tranche of any capital partner on our deal, which is something to highlight as well uh, as we syndicated you know, our funds for this deal. But you know, with that said, it wasn't as if I just had to talk to one person and that could be relayed, but it was every single capital raising partner and fund manager I'd speak with in reference to what was going on, what was changing, the timetables, the updates, because you know, the whole parameter of the deal did change in real time several times throughout the process. So, and then also timetables change, updates change, updating when there'd be an update and then updating after the update, as silly as that sounds. So a laundry list of phone calls were always being made to the entire group of people through the process, kind of conveying what's going on. And, you know, frankly, you know, not helping everyone not hit the panic button, but also to make people safe and comfortable with the fact that their money is doing nothing for them when they wired, because we had basically every sense of the deal funded in April and it's November and all, but I would say 85% of the equity stayed in the deal during the entirety of it. Uh, you know, it was a roller coaster ride there, but that just goes to show how appreciative and lucky we are to have the partners that we work with, that we've been able to attract folks like that, who, you know, will ride with us during more challenging times and will stay in the pocket with us as, you know, the defense comes in and is collapsing the pocket with, you know, interest rates being crazy with a war that just started, you know, the global landscape from, you know, a geopolitical perspective is different now, the interest rate environment slightly different now. Everything is, has totally changed through this process of, uh, of, of the deal, raising equity, has gotten more challenging through the process of it. So, you know, it was a very challenging process to continuously call everyone to update them. And it is also my end kind of brain damage and so redundant doing the same conversation, but there, you know, the juice is definitely worth the squeeze in this one for us people to say we accomplished this to get such a great deal. And, you know, as bonus appreciation, the sun setting, getting a deal with this leverage, getting our investors great deals, but also helping with some of their tax liabilities 
Um, you know, working with some of the first time partners here. That's a big thing. And I think it's something we want to talk about as well Is we had a lot of really impressive first time capital partners that we're working with on this deal. And it's not the easiest process, you know, the deal itself, when there's, you know, more nuance to this, there's going to be more hair. Having more hair in this deal uh, is the upside to it, but also is challenging. And, you know, to not have delivered on that would have been just deflating, but also think about our time. It's not just losing the money in the front end, but it's the net swing, what the firm was doing with all that time as well. So like the double sided of that, the, the, the downside, if we didn't pull this off, would be incredibly deflating. It wouldn't cripple us forever. But it would have really, really put a kind of a black eye and a stain on the year of 2023. So the fact that we're kind of closing that out as we head into the holiday season is really nice. Um, I think we're excited, but we want more. Yeah, that all sounds great. Yeah, I mean, I think we're kind of brushing off the fact that it's a $100 million deal. And it's our yes. first $100 million yeah. deal. So and can you talk about the the pricing, the units, or sorry, the, the, the pricing of each deal for the three properties, where they sit, um, you know, the, the grade of them, the whole nine, or would you like me to get into that? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we can quickly cover that. So uh, Beckley and Highland is the two properties next door to each other. Uh, that is being that that we purchased at a total of, I believe, 61,750,000 and Meritage which is the standalone asset that's built in 2008, very nice uh, you know, mid-rise property, uh, that we acquired for 43750000 Is that correct? That sounds about right. And I want to add a couple of nuances and wrinkles to this. So I remember we were speaking to someone in February, March of 2023, and he was saying a year before, he's looking at Meritage, but for about $54 million dollars. And we acquired that for more than $10 million off that, which just goes to show basis, basis, basis. That was an interest rate environment. It was crazy, but that kind of goes to show what goes on when markets look different. So the fact that we're getting that for such a great deal, fixed rate debt and making it make sense is awesome. And the really cool thing about that property as we go through, Meritage, <laughs> excuse me, is it's built in 2008. One thing we want, two things that are really important to think about in our space is replacement cost and is there a new supply coming to the area? So Texas, you know, as they say, you can build a highway, you can build basically from out to Oklahoma and everything between and develop the whole way and not have any, you know, uh, rules to stop you. Well, in Texas, specifically in Houston, it's so easy to develop, but in that specific pocket near the Galleria, which is great, in the inner loop, as you mentioned, there's not one construction process going on right now or anything planned going up. And that will not get any better or change likely with you know pricing being crazy with the interest rate environment being crazy as well so there's a moat around the supply coming there in addition to that we're buying that for about what 181 a unit but replacement costs is about two hundred seventy-five thousand dollars a unit if you could even build there so we're really proud of those just kind of simple economic metrics and then let alone making it cash flow where we're going to make it cash flow with the debt profile it's very exciting do you want to add any more color to the meritage property yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's specifically talk about replacement cost. Replacement cost for people who don't know is the the cost to build something and replace it essentially. So if you have a property, you need to be able to replace it by purchasing the land. So you have to factor in the land value and the construction costs, and that's your replacement cost. And replacement cost is important because it is speaks to the economics of your competition. If you acquire a property for above replacement cost, that is a scary position to be in because it speaks to the fact that developers could go in and compete with you because they could build for a cheaper basis, which means they could afford to have lower rents than you. So it speaks to the insecure position of, of supply and demand there. Conversely, if you're acquiring at below replacement cost, it's a moat. It's somewhat of an insolent, uh, is insolent a word? Insulator to... It is if you have diabetes, I believe, but uh, or what your body creates, but uh, insulate... Yeah, so it, it's an insulator, if you will, uh, against new supply. And what's actually interesting is we're seeing, as you said, basis, basis, basis. We're seeing prices come down and they're coming down so much to now developers are looking at opportunities and thinking, well, why would I build something right now when I could just buy it for less? So like you said, it's hard for developers to find projects that make sense right now. It's hard for them to 
get construction financing. So it's very hard to get construction projects off the ground, which bodes really well for the supply pipeline over the next couple of years. So if you're able to buy right in a supply constrained situation, you're going to see rents probably do pretty well, perhaps even in spite of a recessionary environment where rents will soften, collections will soften, right? That's going to be really important to offset those macro fundamental headwinds. Absolutely. And it's just something to think about where single family homes, there's a shortage of those. So, you know, who gets sucked down? It's the buyer, right? And well, if there's not a good enough rental pool, there's not enough product, they're going to go into, you know, class A units or maybe B plus, and then we'll all trickle down to what we're looking to acquire currently, which will just kind of squeeze and put a stranglehold on the market to your point. Uh, But yeah, I mean, getting a property, with basically a moat around it, as we said, getting a property where there's not anything being built in the area is really, really beneficial. But also, as they say, location, location, location. You can't change the location of the property and then you can't change the basis of where you bought it. I think people talk too much about location being the most important factor. I think location and basis are equally as important because you know it's impossible to make money if you don't buy right. So buying this property right, buying it at a better point in the cycle, you know, obviously no one's going to time the market perfectly, but acquiring the property where we did at a basically a $10 million discount from what the other incredibly sophisticated group was about to do makes us feel really good internally because we know how sharp those folks are. So that made us feel really great there. Uh, in addition to that, the property is essentially zero deferred maintenance. It's impeccably uh, kept and the occupancy has historically been great. So, you know, one thing at Lone Star Capital we're really looking to do is to acquire properties without a massive lift associated with the deal. And by lift, I mean, that could be, you know, a whole turnaround project. Maybe if we get paid for it, but also occupancy issues because there's occupancy issues that could be, you know, just a bad tenant base. It's, it's very difficult to correct that issue. So we're just really thrilled about where we're getting the deal at, the performance of it, and then implementing this unique strategy from a tax play. Uh, is just a, a kind of a, a marriage and a home run that makes sense to us all day. The way we're looking at this and perceiving it is it's like a value add like return, but with core plus property. And that's a very unique situation for us to be in. Yeah. So if you look at the underwriting on these deals, we're basically keeping the whole business plan on the revenue side is basically keeping revenue flat because we are restricting the rents because of the affordable component of the deal. Half of the units have rent restrictions. And then we're going to do some minor renovations and things like that. But we don't need to really be aggressive with our value add plan because of the affordable nature of these projects. So like you said, we're able to, by way of the tax exemption, target mid-teens returns, so value add level returns, while taking very little risk, in our humble opinion, uh, because of how we're just basically keeping revenue flat. So it's not a a risky revenue plan. And all the value creation is done over the last nine months or so of securing these property tax exemptions, which go for 99 years. So that is a very nice risk-adjusted return profile, which we can feel very good about with long-term stable fixed rate debt. But going back to the $100 million portfolio. It's a big deal to close $100 million in one deal. You know, Certainly, we've closed hundreds of millions in multiple deals and in about the same amount of time frame. So the honestly, the timing that it took, the time that it took to close this portfolio is no, no fun and unimpressive because over that time period, we could have been doing more business essentially than $100 million. But it is cool. Maybe not this market, though. It's tough to say. No, right? this is a tough market, very much so. In this market, you know, doing a hundred million dollar deal is kind of like doing two hundred before, in my opinion, especially with the amount of equity needs to be raised, right? Yeah, and that's that's kind of where I wanted to go, which is if we can close a hundred million dollar deal in this environment, and we have investors who are are loyal, and we can trust them, and we can go in with them, then when the deals are going to be even more attractive in twenty twenty four hopefully, but there's going to be more panic and fear in the market. Hopefully, our investors will trust us again and be willing to go in with us on really exciting opportunities where it's going to take capital and courage, and we're going to be there standing shoulder to shoulder to take advantage of all the opportunity. 
Yeah, and real quick, let's just get into Beckley and Highland and have a couple of thoughts on that front. But Beckley and Highland, two garden style properties. Garden style is stick construction for those who don't know. Um, it's not mid-rise podium build like uh, like Meritage's. But these are two properties that are right next door to each other, which is great. We're big believer in you know efficiency, economies of scale, making sure that we can kind of consolidate management. You know, having these properties feed off one another, which is really beneficial. So those properties there have. Uh, units that are, you know, basically zero deferred maintenance. And uh, one of the properties, if it's blanking, if it's Beckley or Highland, to be fully transparent with you, as it's been a little bit of time since we we're there, uh, one of them is more updated and one of them needs to get about, or needs to have some more updates being done. But they're very pretty, pretty properties. We'd probably classify these as B+. And the thing we like about this is school district. So this is in the second best school district in Houston. Uh, it's in Northwest Houston. So not in any risk of flood issues or anything like that or weather events. Um, so things like that really make it uh, make us excited. As I said before, and we'll say it here again, but basically a core plus property with a value add like return, which is a very unique thing to create. I wanted to go back to a comment you made, which is here at Lone Star, we're focusing on buying deals without a lift or a heavy lift, and we want to buy clean properties. That has been true for the last couple of years. So the reason why, because we are also open to doing heavy lifts and do, getting our hands dirty with deeper value add. However, over the last few years, the risk has not been priced into those opportunities. So you'd be buying a value add deal where you're taking risk on retenanting and taking construction risk and taking the time to raise rents and everything. And you weren't really seeing an enhanced return for that. There wasn't a return premium. So it didn't make sense to take the additional risk. And today we continue to see that I would say, but in a slightly different element because a couple of years ago, while you weren't getting paid for the physical or the operational risk associated with a value plan, you still could finance it. You could get a bridge loan for cheap at the time and, and make the deal work. However, today it's very difficult because even if as pricing is coming down and risk is being repriced back into the market, so value add deals are being priced more appropriately now the financing is really, really wide. So to paint that picture more clearly, the difference in cost between a permanent loan and a bridge loan was the same, roughly speaking. But now the pricing is very divergent. And so you need to have that much more additional return coming from a valued plan to justify doing a bridge loan. So if you're going to buy at a low cap rate, meaning the current income at the property is low and your business plan is to raise the rents and raise occupancy and do all that so that way you can get the income up, that requires a bridge loan. And because bridge loans are so expensive, you're going to have to buy that deal really cheap. And so that's why today we're still not seeing much at all that's attractive to be buying on a bridge loan to turn a property around. So today we're continuing to focus on quality deals with strong in-place income because the more in-place income or said another way, the greater the in-place cap rate, the better that we can finance the deal and the more leverage we can get. Not that we're going to over-lever the deal, but we're talking instead of 50% LTV, we can get 70. That's ideal. And that requires today, just based on raw math, it requires buying a deal at least for a six cap, hopefully in the mid sixes. Interesting. And what is the most ideal setup? Like if you were to build a perfect deal right now that you, you'd want to buy, what does that kind of look like? Is it, you know, higher occupancy that just has positive leverage that's, you know, lower risk, not much return around? Like what, what feels optimal and ideal to you at the moment? Yeah. Other, I mean, other than a unique tax payment strategy that we just pulled off. Yeah. There is definitely more than one ideal deal, but I mean, if you could buy a deal, for a seven cap, hallelujah, you know, that would be great. And, and you can get positive cap. leverage day one. That's what everybody wants. Yeah. And then as far as, you know, value add, how many units would you want to, you know, turn over, if any, maybe a third of the units, if, if it's there, you know, how much CapEx would you want to create or in, in conduct? Well, this is actually a good topic because I don't think we've really talked about this before. So with CapEx, the... In a perfect world, what you do is you only renovate enough units to uh, 
to substantiate the increase in rents. So if you have a 200 unit property and you renovate 30 to 40 units and you get that rent premium on those units, then you can go out to the market and you can show buyers, yeah, look, I renovated a small portion of the units and I got this rent premium and now it's easier for buyers to pay a premium because they're going to go in with that business plan assumption. So you actually can make the most money with the least amount of work and the least amount of risk and fastest by just renovating a handful of units, proving out the concept and then selling it. So that's how a lot of people were getting rich quickly in real estate. They were just flipping deals, essentially buy a deal, prove out the value plan and then flip it. You do some exterior paint or something like that to make it a little prettier. Yeah. You do a lipstick on the pig, as they say, and it's white, white, white paint, black trim. That works. But right now that doesn't work because you're not gonna be able to flip really realistically in this market. This market's not going up and up and up. So it's not conducive at the end of the day. You ha- it's kind of like Warren Buffett, what he says about stocks. If you're not comfortable owning a stock for 10 years, don't even think about owning it for 10 minutes. So we, we think similarly about the real estate that we buy. We have to be comfortable owning the property for the long term. We need to have a contingency to own it long term. We need to have a capital structure that is conducive to owning it long term because that's how you mitigate risk. The longer your horizon, the lower the risk. So for that, we make sure that our financing is appropriate. We also, going back to CapEx specifically, we budget to renovate the entirety of the property. And so that's important because if you do end up holding it for a long time, you, you should carry out a full comprehensive business plan to renovate all the units, to cure all deferred maintenance, because that's your baby. You're owning that for the long term and you want to generate as much income and create as much value at the property. So what we do is we'll budget to do all the work at the property, but then we might not actually end up doing all the work and we might sell it early. We might only do half of the units and then sell the property early, which is perfectly fine. But you, in my opinion, and we've tinkered around with this over the years, you know, we've looked at deals and say, okay, well, maybe we should underwrite just to renovate half the units and see how that looks. But at the end of the day, in our opinion, the best way to go is to basically plan to do everything and then see how it goes. And if there's an opportunity to exit early, then great, you're going to juice up returns because you are able to sell quicker, which helps the IRR. And you took less risk because you actually didn't have to do the work and you got paid for it anyway. Right. I love it. That's a really cool concept and thought to do. And for anyone who's looking to syndicate themselves, maybe you know put that in your back pocket. And if you are an investor, think about that strategy as well is, hey, how many units are they going to do? Is there proof of concept in it? Does it make sense to do all the units? Are you budgeting your ad CapEx correctly? Is it the right strategy? So I love that food for thought. Going back to what you said earlier when I uh, interjected about wanting to finish up on Beckley and Highland in three property portfolio for, yes, the $105 million portfolio is closed is you said something about telling investors that we're about to get into a tough equity market, which is obvious, right? It's going to be the hardest time possible to raise coming up. What is your message right now to anyone who's sophisticated, anyone who who is struggling to make it and make an investment or thinks that, oh, well, you know, this is not the right time coming up. But from everyone we've been speaking with, basically now for the next 24 months is the best time. What is your message to them? Well, certainly I don't know the future. I don't know how good the opportunity is going to be. Maybe Fed lowers rates, tenure comes down, no wars, no recession, and the real estate market goes gangbusters and bonus depreciation goes back in. You never know. And maybe there's no recession or maybe there's no real opportunity. You know, we've seen a nice little discount. And right now people are bragging about the little 20% discount they got on the deal and say, oh, well, the deal was worth this and we bought it for this, but it's still a real story about and basis, basis, basis. No, of course, but the real discounts are coming. Yeah. The real discounts are coming in my opinion, but maybe they, maybe they won't, but assuming they do, it's going to come that you can't have one without the other. It's going to come with negative sentiment, right? You're only going to have depressed prices when people are depressed. So Right now, we're not quite there yet because people aren't quite depressed yet, right? I mean, people are kind of not happy with capital calls and they're not happy with 
everything going on, but they're not quite depressed. So once people are depressed, that's when you'll know, okay, this is the time. This is the time to turn really aggressive, but it's really counterintuitive. It's just the psychology of markets. It's funny. Obviously, it's a very simple game. Buy low, sell high. But psychology, human psychology makes us buy high, sell low. It's really crazy how that works. So, Well, it's a mentality and it's groupthink, by the way. Because think about this. When the whole crypto and NFT craze is going on, it's kind of the, the I think it's like a bigger, the biggest idiot fallacy. But it's just, you know, it's only worth someone's willing to pay. But if everyone's hot about it and talking about it, it, it catches fire in a wave of its own. Similarly, I knew so many people who, you know, I said I'm 29. So Started to make a little money and like, oh, I have to throw my money at this. I have to throw my money at that. They get FOMO. So people really struggle to go against the grain because no one wants to look like an idiot, even though if you are fundamentally doing the right thing, historically speaking. So it's just, unfortunately, that's just the way the way the world works. And I remember you remember talking to this for me when I were talking about my tax situation. You're like, well, wait, how much, you know, like, let's figure out a way to make this happen. And I was so eager to throw my money in equity to the deals. Fortunately, we uh, utilize some really cool tax payment ba- uh, strategies to uh, really create the best opportunity for my situation and for our investors. But, you know, I remember that feeling of I couldn't throw this money at a deal quick enough. And that's just how it works, unfortunately. Yeah. Fortunately, I landed a good home for that equity, but not everyone could say the same. So if we assume that there will be depressed pricing, depressed people, my what I would tell investors if I have the opportunity to do so, is think about previous opportunities like a 2008 situation where I, I love I love this. Hunter said this at our conference. He was he was one of the keynotes, and I thought this was beautiful. He said, "Think about how good the deals were post GFC, and they were so good that people say, oh yeah, that doesn't count. Like you bought." You bought that deal in 2010, so the IRR that you got that doesn't even count. Like, yeah, it's yeah, a good it, deal, it, but it doesn't count. It, it's not fair. Yeah, it's, it's not even game. fair. So, you, so well, no, but it is fair because if you get to play in the game and you get to go through these cycles, you get the benefit of the market going down, but you also guess what? Get the benefit of the market going up too, right? If you can be there at the right time, prepared with capital and courage, you too can have the opportunity to buy in 2024, where years. Later, they'll look back and go, oh, yeah, well, you bought that deal in 2024. That that 40 IRR, that doesn't even count. Like, that's not a normal deal, right? So people are going to look back at 2024 as a really amazing time to buy. Maybe it doesn't happen, but maybe it will. Right, right. So should people be draining all their accounts to to, to throw money into our deals? How would you kind of tell them to allocate their capital um, if, if they had the idea I mean, you know, what what are going to be the signs that, you know, hey, this is the time, in your opinion, other than the fact that you said, hey, 20% discounts already, we got a, a very handsome, you know, price discount on our properties that we acquired um, from where the market high was. But, you know, what are the indicators? When should people feel good about it? And will they feel good about it? Or is that just, you only know, 10 years from then? Well, I think it's a fool's errand to time the bottom. You're not going to be able to time the bottom, nor do you need to time the bottom. If you're going to be waiting around for the bottom, you'll most likely miss it. So, you know, no matter where we are in the market, I think it's always good to be investing and just basically averaging into the market. And I think right now is a really good time to be working on building up liquidity. So if you have longer term investments, finding a way to shift them into more medium short term investments so that they can be converted into cash and invested into real estate. So as far as what people should be doing or when should they be investing or what sign they should be looking for, like I said, if you want depressed pricing, you need depressed people. So wait until the headlines are really negative and wait till people are depressed. And that will be the signal that the deals are really good. Uh, anything that you're most proud of from conducting the closing of the three property portfolio on the $105 million deal, other than maybe pricing itself, what would you say in the, in the scale of it? What would you say really comes to your mind as like, wow, that I feel like I've even arrived further in this space? Because now we're at half a billion of assets under management, correct? So we get that milestone, which is feather in the cap. We could talk about that. Um, but on your end, what really stands out to you as you know this being so special? Well, 
something you mentioned earlier, which is a really good point, is the fact that we have a lot of new, not a lot, but a handful of new partners that are really high quality partners that took a chance on this deal with us. And it would have been a real shame to have a false start and not be able to pull this deal off. And the tax exemption fell through and didn't work out. And we walked away from the deal or what have you. But the fact that we were able to keep the deal together through all the ups and downs and all the time and show these first time investors a good experience. I hope what I hope is a good experience. Well, that was good enough. If it was, it wasn't. And that that's really important, right? The first one's really important. And then hopefully they have a good experience. They want to come back and be a repeat investor because there is no point in this business or any business if you don't have repeat investors, repeat clients, right? So that's really what makes everyone's lives easier is to do business on a repeat basis with people that you like. So we have a lot of people in this deal that we like, and I feel like we're building a nice family and and doing a $100 million deal, that's a big family, right? And, and a big family is more fun than a small family. So the more people that we can get excited about what we're doing and attract and, and bring them in, right? It's just more people, more fun, uh, and we can accomplish more together. So I'm most proud of the people that we're bringing together and doing these amazing things and, and keeping them together through all these difficult situations. Like I said, there's infinite amount of time and reason for our partners to have said, you know what, I'll actually just take a refund. I'm tired of my money sitting, doing nothing. I'm going to go invest it somewhere else. Right. Absolutely. And do you think moving forward, Lone Star, you know, because our goal next year is to about 350 or 300 million of acquisitions, right? So if we want to do 300 million, mathematically speaking, I think you said this to Brad and myself when we were uh, doing the, the deck revamp on Monday, uh, but you kind of alluded to the fact that, hey, if we need to do that, we're looking at about 50 to $80 million every quarter recurring. So do you like this strategy of doing kind of portfolio bundlings like this? Because we don't raise in a fund model. A lot of people ask, oh, do you raise in a fund? No, we do not. We raise per deal basis, but it kind of gives you a fund like structure when you diversify your risk across a couple of deals, like we just did pretty property portfolio. So do you think we're going to want to do that? Do you think it's more efficient to do it that way? What do you think your preferences is be as we proceed forward uh, in this ever-changing environment? Yeah, this is actually a great topic that we should workshop because I don't know. I, I think that there's definitely pros, but there's also cons. So if our goal, let's just break this down. If our goal is 300 million of acquisition volume in a given year, we can accomplish that goal of a couple ways. We can do 10, $30 million deals. We could do $300 million deals or portfolios. We could do 20, $15 million deals, right? So it can be accomplished a lot of different ways. Obviously, doing less deals that are bigger is for sure better. And so we have to draw a line in the sand and decide, okay, well, what's the smallest deal that we're willing to do? Because frankly, a $10 million deal just doesn't really move the needle if our goal is $300 million. It's So it's very difficult. It's tempting. I, I'm a deal junkie. So when a $10 million deal comes across my desk and it looks interesting, I'm inclined to do it. I want to jump. But I think it requires, our goals require patience and seeing the bigger picture and realizing that, you know, this $10 million deal could be a $10 million distraction because we could be spending a couple months doing a $10 million deal, which will take us away from doing a $30, 40 $50 million deal. However, with that being said, what's stopping us from taking that $10 million deal and roping it into a portfolio with another 20 and then a 30 or something. And then before you know it, you have a nice 60, $80 million portfolio. So that's also a question is what's our minimum deals that we're willing to do? And then what is the minimum deal size that we're willing to do in the context of a portfolio? So those are the questions that we need to answer for ourselves. And let me just also add a couple more concepts as far as doing a bundle or a portfolio deal. So Legally speaking, the way that we structure it is we create a parent entity. So every deal, no matter what, if it's a portfolio or a standalone, is going to have an SPV or a special purpose vehicle. So every deal, we create a new limited partnership for it. But when we do a portfolio, we'll have 
we have a limited partnership for each deal, which is then owned and managed by a parent entity, which is what the investors invest into. The investors invest into the parent entity, which then gets pro rata ownership across the underlying uh, SPVs for the portfolio assets. So from a legal perspective, it's all pretty straightforward and easy. Only have to do one PPM, one offering, one parent operating agreement. And we're only doing one fundraise. We're going to investors and saying, hey, here's the deal. It's two, three properties. Do you want to invest? Okay, yes, fantastic. So it's a bit simpler from a fundraising standpoint because you're raising for one thing rather than raising for two things. But that creates complications from a business standpoint because maybe an investor doesn't want to invest in a portfolio. Maybe they like one of the deals not and not the other. So that creates more hassle there, headache there. It also is challenging and precludes largely institutional investors from participating unless you carve out a sidecar so that they can invest directly. Because by and large, institutional investors don't do funds. They invest for majority control in a deal-specific opportunity. So those are some of the high-level things that I think about when I think about bundling. But if I look at MG Properties, which is a very good sponsor, kind of a role model for us, in my opinion, that's what that's their bread and butter. They do pretty much, from what I've seen lately, only portfolios. Typically, they'll do two deals at a time, pack them together. They'll be in disparate markets. And for them, I think they're just going for the, the bigger is better approach. And they're doing these big portfolios, like 200 million at a shot. I love that. And I love the concept of the capacity because we can do a $105 million deal. Well, what's to stop us from doing a $200 million deal and so on and so forth. So I think hopefully this gives us the confidence to do that. But to your point, figuring out what makes sense. So I guess on our end, can we theoretically create a solution where, you know, there's three deals. Could we get three separate JV partners maybe for those three deals? If we had three partners lined up for it, or maybe one group wants a JV two, or we do a syndication on the other amount and we kind of just set up the tranche accordingly, you know, how does that kind of work? Is that possible to your point of how you kind of just broke out the structuring of the, the deals? Right. I mean, if you do have JV equity on a deal, then it may make sense just to pull it out of the portfolio and just do that completely standalone. And so theoretically, if you have three different JV investors lined up, then you can just uh, just do them individually, right? And it's not really that helpful to bundle them at that point. So I think really it lends itself better. Bundling lends itself better to syndication, which is what MG does. And it's what we did on the three pack. So yeah, I don't... Uh, I see I see the institutional investors being a problem for the portfolio strategy. Gotcha. Well, things to think about for sure on our end. Any closing thoughts on the three property portfolio other than the fact that, oh my God, we did it and we're done with it and we're getting paid and our investors get a great deal? No, no, it's all good. It's exciting. Now the real work begins of taking over these assets and managing them right and implementing uh you know the affordable property standards and things like that so it's all very exciting we've we already in anticipation of the closing hired additional management personnel so we've beefed up staff down in Houston so we're ready to rock and roll there and it's uh it's exciting times so now do we want to talk about the oh also you asked me what I was most proud about aside from, and I answered with people and stuff like that but I think the other thing that I'm really proud about, which I think is our next topic, that ties in with this good situation, but there's all, you know, with the good, there's the bad. I actually think that this bad situation was a defining moment for us. I think a defining moment for a firm. It really shows the true credibility that we have. We, we will put our money where our mouth is. And I've said this before, but giving the Lone Star stamp of approval on a deal that we go forward with means... All of our futures are tied into it. That means we have that deal on the resume permanently. We're going to have our equity tied up to it. I invest all my acquisition fees into these deals. And also a large part of my compensation is theoretically how the deal performs, it doesn't perform. So that's big for us. So we are not just going to buy a deal to buy a deal. 
let us explain to you the 750,000 reasons as to why that's the case. And I'll let lead with that. Okay, cool. So we bought our first deal in Dallas earlier this year, March in 2023. So Dallas is a fantastic market. It's arguably the best market in the country. Very, very competitive. Our investors like Dallas. We want to be in Dallas. We want to hire more personnel in Dallas. So we bought our first deal earlier this year, and then we put our second Dallas deal under contract in May. And back in May, treasuries were like three and a half percent. And so we it was, under- weird, by the, way. It was the, the final end of decent treasuries, as we know it now. We thought those were high at the moment, uh, but boy, oh boy, those made a nice run up since. Yeah. So treasuries are almost 5% today. So we've seen just an unbelievable rise in treasuries right when we were under contract there. And so typically speaking, I don't want to say typically, but in many circumstances, when something like that happens, it's treasuries going up is nobody's fault. It's not the buyer's fault. It's not the seller's fault. But realistically, the buyer shouldn't be penalized for something that's not in their control. Sometimes you have to take the pain, but you shouldn't necessarily. So if the seller is willing, you should be able to renegotiate the price and say, well, hey, look, treasuries are here now. We underwrote the deal originally based on these treasuries. We need a price adjustment of X so that we can get back to our originally projected returns. And that's that's how you renegotiate the price on a deal, essentially. However, in this situation with this Dallas deal, the seller wasn't budging. We needed millions off the price because of how much treasuries moved and they weren't willing to budge. So we had to make, and the thing that is so sad is we really wanted this deal. It's a fantastic deal. We were so excited about it. We thought we were, we originally were getting a great deal based on the numbers and everything. And then interest rates, of course, made it not so great of a deal. But the crazy thing was, is we had all the money raised for this deal. We had $17 million in the bank, ready to buy this deal. And I had to tell the broker, sorry, I mean, we're just not going to do it. There's, we're just not going to put our investors in this deal. The numbers don't make sense anymore. It's it's not going to meet our expectations. Yeah, and I just want to explain this to, to people, just do some quick math. I don't know the exact amount of money we would have made in reference to closing the deal, but it would probably outweigh slightly the fees associated with uh, basically tying the deal up and going through that process. So that's one end of it is we're going to make this on the deal, but we also put up this to buy the deal. But when we end up, not buying the deal, this slides to here. So the opportunity cost becomes this of not closing. So the Delta gets really, really wide, just like if we didn't close a three property portfolio, it's not that we missed out on a $105 million deal. It's that we just spent time, money and executional you know, opportunity costs on a, something that didn't transpire. So the kind of negative effect on the other end was challenging. However, I will say this, going through and calling everyone as to why we didn't go forward with the deal. I can't express to you how proud I was to make those calls because I was like, oh, this is not the most phone call, but how I proud I felt when legitimately everyone that I called, you know, they thought highly of us enough to invest with us, but how they felt when I gave them a phone call saying, hey, we're not buying the deal and here's why, how, how flattered they were and how appreciative they were to hear that we weren't going to put their money, you know, there in a deal that we didn't believe in made, I think us build and establish more trust with them than what we would have done if we were to buy a deal and go, you know, 20 IRR and a three-year hold and everyone feels great. So I'm really proud of that. And on your end, you know, I'm not as financially tied up as you and Kent are into these deals. Obviously, um, as I said, I make money on the back end and the front end of a deal. So naturally, I wasn't the most thrilled, but I have nowhere near the financial uh, incentive to get these things done. Ultimately, we could have got it done, but to your point, we elected to walk away and you know hold our heads high during that process. And remember, that was a, kind of a challenging, you know, kind of couple months. It was the summer; the market was just not feeling very good. Some more economic time or economic information came out that wasn't the most fun. Treasuries were running up. We were tr- struggling to kind of make sense of how the three property portfolio was going to go. So, you know, we'll kind of look probably back at that time as that was a very, very interesting kind of lull and a kind of really, really large uncertainty as a firm, and we were able to overcome it. Yeah, a lot of good points you made there. The point you made was was very good about the fact that 
making the decision to walk away from pursuit costs. And so I just want to explain a little bit more for people who aren't uh, in the business as much. When you put a deal under con- contract, a seller typically won't let you just tie them up under contract for nothing. You typically have to put down an earnest money deposit. And so for this deal, we put down a $750,000 earnest money deposit that was fully at risk in the event that we didn't close. Additionally, on top of that, there's due diligence costs, there's travel, there's marketing costs, there's uh, third-party reports and things like that. Third parties are environmental appraisal and property condition analysis. So those are expensive and, and that all adds to your pursuit costs. So typically people call it your risk capital or your earnest money or your pursuit costs. And so the decision to walk away from the pursuit costs is painful, right? You're losing that money. And then to your point, it's not just the loss of that pursuit cost. It's also the loss of the income associated with closing, right? We would have, Lone Star would have made an acquisition fee. So we would have made uh, a million and change in, in acquisition fees. And so you're talking about a, yeah. you're talking about a $2 million swing, right? You're losing money and you're losing out. Day one. Yes. Not the management and other again, asset management fees, which is not a ton of money, but it still you know helps keep the lights on in the World Trade Center and such. But the switch and and the other, the other interesting thing is is that real estate is a collaboration business where all parties can theoretically win on a transaction. Title lender people they can get paid right. The seller can you know pay out their investors if there's equity to deploy, uh, or you know in this situation maybe they did, there wasn't much equity to go around. Who knows. Uh, And then on our end, our investors can get in a deal, help with their tax incentives, and we can get paid. So, so many people win when that happens. When the market loses velocity and rates go up, you know, a lot less money is trading hands, which is unfortunate. I think everyone's seeing that right now in the real estate business. Transaction volume is down. Whether you look at it, but it's probably for sure 60% on the low end, but it could be as high as 80%. It depends on what sector you're in. Depends, you know, what you're listening to or watching, but let's just call it and be conservative 60-80%. That is just for those who don't understand the real estate business works or are kind of getting into it. That is a monumental difference of monies being made and money being transferred, which is really crippling a lot of people in the industry right now. So it's no fun when these deals don't go through. You know, we make money on transactions happening. We don't just make money out of out of the clouds, right? We have to make things happen. So it just it really is not fun when we spend so much time and effort getting things sorted out reference to me doing outreach calling do webinars doing webinars for people for their for, for their stuff you thinking about how you want to structure the deal you thinking about how you want to you know place the equity you thinking about the best debt you know with, with all parties associated it's just it's really an unfun experience but the silver lining in this situation the silver lining in this process was our integrity and our ethics and you know giving people the best what we feel in our heart of hearts is the best market rate deal and best market rate investment you can possibly put your money in. And unfortunately, that changed during the holding process. So we don't look at the situation as we lost money. We look at it as we made an investment. Walking away from the deal was an investment in ourselves, in our brand, and in our relationships. Because if we were, if we ended up closing the deal, we would have closed and then that's it. We would have been partnering with investors and we'd have to answer to them every single month as to why the returns aren't meeting their expectations, right? The deal is different than from what they signed up for. And that's not fair. So we made an investment in ourselves because we're losing out on the deal. We're losing out on the income from the deal, but we're, and we're losing the earnest money deposit, right? We're losing cold, hard cash, but we gained trust and also, one of my favorite quotes is the best deal you can do is the one you don't or is is not doing, right? The best deal is the one you don't do. Uh, and what that means is no matter how good of a deal you can do, 50, 60, 70 IRR, the best thing you can do is avoiding a bad deal. That's the most important thing. And that is the investment that we made. Absolutely. Is there any other juicy detail that we're missing out on this one? I, mean, I think we're pretty well covered on this deal, uh, but we've been wanting to talk about this for some time, walking away from it. Can you think of anything else? Any other civil linings or anything that's interesting regarding this deal? Has it sold yet? Is it for sale? Will we revisit it? Kind of give us the background on that. Yeah, it hasn't sold yet. We may come back to it. Maybe the seller will change their mind and be willing to sell for less. I mean, the, th- the thing that's crazy is Dallas remains so competitive. 
and we're just not seeing pricing for the most part get there as much houston and san antonio are are moving things are the gears are turning we're seeing pricing get there where it needs to be in order to have a functioning transactional market where buyers and sellers are meeting in the middle i mean frankly we're just we're the ones i guess we're the idiots because in dallas somehow other buyers are making sense of it and they're paying uh high prices in our opinion so that people are probably smarter than us and they probably are just ascribing more value to the Dallas market than what we're willing to to bake into the numbers. And so we're trying. You know, and I feel as if on our end, there's a time to get risky. There's a time to be more aggressive. There's a time to really go all in. I don't believe we're at that moment right now where it makes sense to go all out and buy everything because any deal is just going to go up. I still think there's a chance that, you know, there's other deals that are good. And I think the other thing to think about is, you know, what we say yes to, and this is to anything in life. And this is a life lesson that I've learned. You've learned this as well. But if you're saying yes to something, you're saying no to other things, right? So the last thing that we want to do, and this is something that on our end we think about is discipline. Whatever deal we say yes to right now, Who's to say that in two weeks from now, we don't find a better deal and we should probably, you know, shift our attention to that. Now we may, as you mentioned, do a portfolio offering to many people. Uh, But with that said, it's something to think about where, you know, great deals around the corner. We just close a huge one, focus on what's in front of us, but to be very patient. But I do think in six months from now, especially, uh, you know, I think rates cuts will start coming in the Q3. Six months from now, I think everything will start to make sense. And right now, things are really making sense as well. So I'm not trying to diminish the opportunities we have. But you know, for us to go all out and aggressive, probably between now and the next 24 months, we're going to go all in on that and make it happen. We're not going to put a square pegs in a round hole, but we're going to go all out. And I really look forward to going this process. And hopefully some listeners here can join us on that and can bring money to us for deals to make that happen. And know that if we go forward with the deal, it's because we love it, not just because we'll make a couple bucks on the fees. Yeah, very well said. Shifting gears now to something that is near and dear and something that's very important. We have about 10 minutes left here because I have a call promptly in 10 minutes. Rob, why don't you do this little screen sharing and why don't you kind of walk through what every gentleman should have should they be looking to start their suit game and the wardrobe game or if they're looking to revamp their wardrobe. So do you want to do everyone the honors and do a favor of pulling up the suit supply website. While you do that, I'm going to depart from the screen briefly, but why don't you walk through what every guy needs to have? Uh, sorry, we can't speak to the women's fashion on this. So if you're a gal watching, thank you for watching. This may not be for you, but if you have a significant other or a family member that needs to enhance their uh, suit aesthetic, please, please, please take some great notes here. So yeah, so we're, we're going to unveil why you call me Mr. Suit Supply himself, uh, because my wardrobe is comprised nearly entirely of suit supply. I keep it simple. Suit supply is not cheap, but it's not, we're not talking Armani suits, right? You can, you can look really good and not break the bank. So the thing that is tough is where to start because you walk into a store, whichever store it is. And there's so many options. You know, we're scrolling through the website here and there's white suits, black suits, gray suits, double breasted, peak lapel. It's so overwhelming. And this is true for, like I said, any store and really any style. This is not just for menswear and and for suiting. So and the reason for that is because the store wants to make money. They want to sell you more. So they're going to have trends. They're going to have seasons and they want to they want to sell you a suit for spring. They want to sell you a suit for the summer. They want to sell you a suit for winter but you don't need any of that. All you need is a dark navy suit. So and you, you also do want to talk about the palette that is applicable if you're a Lone Star Capital employee going into the office because we've had conversations regarding that. So what coloring for the people, what is in our buy box? And this will likely go into precisely what you're speaking on in reference to only classics, right? But what are no-goes in our office and you think are kind of faux pas? Um, and what do you recommend 
everyone to have. And if you were to build, and I talk to you about this all the time, a four suit rotation, what does that look like? I know it's a lot of questions, but let's rally them out because I know we talk about this all the time. So this should be light work for you. Not like closing a $105 million portfolio deal. Yeah, that's that's light work too. But this, right. so if I click on the contemporary suits tab, I mean, these suits, you cannot wear this to the office. We, we I mean, that, you can't, you can wear that to Central Park on a Saturday on a date, but that's about it. Yeah, that looks spiffy. So, you know, our, our office dress code is, it's not super explicit. And I, I we're, we're, we're lenient. As long as you look presentable with its suit and tie, everything's pretty much fine. But preferably, we're talking conservative dark suits. So anything here is not going to work. We don't want overly casual fabrics either. I mean, the suit should be wool. All right. So we shouldn't see anything too crazy. This sort of pattern like this is a bit much. Uh, I would say this is appropriate. This is this is very handsome. Uh, and I'm looking at a double-breasted. Is that, is that on the spectrum of thing? Would that be allowed in the office? Would you be yeah. okay with that? Yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with a wide lapel peak. A lot of buttons on that suit though. Pinstripe. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty nifty. So, but I mean, you asked me what's the core four. I mean, the core four is you need a dark navy. Boom. So, and you also recommend the bird's eye, correct? So I love bird's eye. Bird's eye. Yeah, so, and you want to pull that up, maybe the texture associated with the suit as well, please. Kind of where, where that fits in line with with you know the, the classic navy because it's a slightly lighter navy. No, it is. It is light. Yeah, and or maybe a mild navy. It's it's still appropriate, you know. Everything here that if people are watching on YouTube and seeing the screen, everything here is perfectly appropriate. This uh, is this, this is a bird's eye right here. It's hard to see on the screen, but in person it has texture. It it has a different uh, feeling and and look. It's got some weaving in it, so it's it's more unique. Bird's eye is less formal than just a straight typical. Uh, you know, finish. I don't know exactly how to describe it or what it what it looks like, but yeah, I mean, this this is not appropriate. <laughs> Light blue like this, this is no good. And yeah, it's like the Ryan Serkin. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's honestly so many details, and there's like like for example, this the buttons. You need to have dark buttons. These pants. Oh, so is, that, is, that, is that a sport coat? Because it doesn't have the pocket like that. No, it, it's still a, it's still a suit. Okay. But yes, exactly. It's a it's a uh, jetted pocket. Um, you know, flat pockets are what you need. So, and also this right here is a patch pocket. This is inappropriate in my opinion. I mean, you can get away with it, but it's just a flap is a flap yeah. is best. So where's so, the flap? All right, so suit number one, we're going to go with on, on the draft board. Number one, we're going with the bird's eye. What is the second suit that needs to be acquired? Well, I wouldn't go number one with bird's eye. I would go with dark navy. So I would okay, go with like this. Navy. So you're saying right there, Dark Navy, number one. What's the second draft pick on the big board for suits? I would from there. Probably charcoal, right? I would go charcoal. Yeah. Like this. Yeah. And then you'd probably. Fantastic. So I think what I would recommend, not that I'm as proficient as you, but those two suits right there. So you have a darker charcoal, you got a darker navy, then the bird's eye, which is a lighter navy, and then a lighter charcoal. And then for number five, I would go with the pinstripe. Yes. But. Pinstripe. Love pinstripe. This yeah. this right here is exactly what everyone should get. This is a ready to wear suit. I mean, this I made custom. Hey, by the way, it, what, yeah, exactly. You have your your finger or sorry, the the click mouse on uh, a suit, not your actual suit, but it's what you're referring to is Rob. What Rob is wearing, just to clarify. Yes, yes, yes. Today I'm wearing my uh, one of my peak lapel pinstripe suits so i think a pinstripe's really nice but yeah you, you don't want your pin- what, what you mean by peak lapel because you you gloss over that but not everyone may actually know what that means so could you kind of give the honors and kind of break down the, the lapel differences and such sure so if you're looking on the screen a uh, notch lapel is most classically seen on a suit jacket and it means on your lapel which are the the folded edges of your suit jacket and the front there's a notch and that's just what's most common. However, there's also a peak lapel, which is, I wouldn't say less formal, but I would say more flashy. So equal in formality, but it's more 
flashy. It's it's more, you know, to some people, maybe like a little out there, a little edgy. So I, I like it. I think it's a nice sartorial touch. It stands out. And so, yeah, most of my suits have that peak, which I think is cool. And it's and, funny. I like the more traditional look personally. Um, that's just me. But you love the peak lapel. Every suit that you have is customized. And I also want to mention one thing about suit supply. Suits have a ranging of price, of course. The value and quality that you're getting for basically like a sub thousand dollar suit, which the bird's eye is and most options we just recommended, you can go all the way up probably to a couple thousand bucks from suit supply, depending upon how customized you want to get. But you're getting incredible quality traveler suits that will travel well, will take a beating, you know, can can do really, really nicely, that will last you a very nice amount of time, and that will look solid. But you also get them tailored to fit perfectly. So I remember it was a very weird series event, is after I formalized my hair a bit more and made it look more uh, Lone Star approved. Yes, your hair looks amazing today. Five, thank you. I had about five compliments in a day long uh, period or two day long period, I should say, of people complimenting their suits. And I don't know if it was a hair comment or the hair tied together because I actually look like I should be wearing a suit finally. But these are not $3,000, $4,000 Armani suits that people kind of, you know, gas up saying they're the best thing ever. You know, these are standard suit supply suits that are made for your body, customized off that, and that are going to run you no more than $1,000, which is great for the value that you're getting. Now, I'm not saying $1,000 is not a lot of money, but in the suit world, it's incredible value. Yeah. So, and if you are in the New York area and you want to check out suit supply, go to the Soho flagship location ask for my friend Max there. Max is the top sales guy there and he knows his stuff. He's not going to sell you what you don't need. And he's willing to take the time to work with you to get your right fit. And to your point, you can buy, you're better off buying a $200 cheap suit and spending another $200 tailoring it than you are buying a $2,000 suit and not tailoring it. Yeah, you, no one wants to look like an NBA player in 2002 or 2000 or 1998, 2005. And if you know, you know, Google that if you need a visual, but go to draft nights and suits, ill-fitted, not look appropriate. Suit supply will get you sorted out. With that said, we are out of time, unfortunately, but I will say this for dress shirts, a nice navy like, or sorry, blue like this is good. A white shirt's important. Two white shirts. I do the banker's collars typically, which is a white sleeve and a white collar uh, and then blue throughout. That's my favorite look, but two white shirts and a blue, you're sorted. Get some nice ties. Don't have to go crazy on it. Simple. Do not go pattern crazy. Less is more with the suit world. With that said, thank you so much for listening. Congratulations to Lone Star Capital for closing a $105 million deal, bringing a portfolio size up to $500 million. And then with that said, if you're looking to raise equity for our deals, looking to partner with us, please let us know. Reach out to me. My name is Craig. And once again, my email is craig at lscre.com. And we'll see you on episode 22. Peace.